Welcome to our second season of Spirited Discussions. I'm Lachlan Watt and I have over 10 years experience in both the spirits and bar industries while also having an insatiable thirst for understanding the booze that we drink. Through this series, we will dive deeper into the topics that we have grazed in season one and dive into some other historical tidbits that have guided our drinking habits. Join me through our second season and well, let's get started. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Spirited Discussions. Now, today, we are going to be exploring one of my favorite cocktail culture histories um, and one of my favorite, uh, you know, I guess, series of drinks that, that can be explored um, in, in this industry. And I'm doing it with one of my very closest friends and one of my personal idols in this industry, Fred Siggins. Welcome. Oh, you stop it. You stop it. You're too nice to me. <laughs> no, I'm not. Come on. Now, um, before we dive into the episode, because there's so much history we're going to dive into, first of all, I'd like you to tell us about your time in this industry, how you came to be where you are, what you're doing currently, all of that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, my name is, is Fred Siggins. I am a 25-year veteran of the hospitality industry. I've been a chef, a cocktail bartender. Yeah. Worked on the marketing side doing... Um, you know, brand management and that type of thing. These days I am a writer. I write about drinks and cocktails and spirits and stuff for various publications. And I also host events and private tastings at Whiskey and Ailment. Um, and I am a co-owner of an American whiskey bar that's just opened in Northgate called Goodwater. Wow. That's yeah. a lot of things going on. Uh, one or two. And also, you're, especially for the topic we're talking about today, which is cocktails, you're an ex-Black Pearl bartender. Yes. And Black Pearl is arguably the most prolific bar in Melbourne as far as cocktails concerned. Uh, concerned. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been around for a while and it's probably the, the best-known cocktail bar in, in Melbourne internationally. Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of leading into what we're going to be talking about, which is Tropicana drinks, which people yes. will... I mean, we're going to talk about this later on in the episode, which is the terminology around this this category, this this movement, um, which is we we're calling Tropicana today, but for most people they call it tiki. Yeah, most people know these drinks as being tiki drinks, yeah. um, sort of in the in the modern era. But uh, yeah, I prefer to call them tropical drinks because it's a little bit more sort of all encompassing. And yeah, we'll, we'll get into the reasons. Yeah, for that we'll get into later. it later on, but. Are you ready to watch me not do well at doing a 60-second history of this incredible movement that's about 90 years young? 60 seconds to do the whole history of tropical cocktails? Yeah. From 1933 till today? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you can give it a crack. Uh, I'll give it a good old crack. All right. I've got it written down and the name of the guy is half of, he's a 30-second name. So how am I going to do this? Do, do you want me to time you? Yes, please. All right, you ready? Yes. Go. Tropicana drink culture kicks into gear just post-prohibition with a name, main, na, man named Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant, later known as Don Beach. Yeah. As after years of traveling around the world, especially through Polynesia and the Caribbean, Beaumont Gant opened his first venue just off of Hollywood Boulevard, Boulevard just after prohibition. 
Now, he opened this venue with a lot of clutter that he'd collected over the years and with the intention to make, uh, you know, I guess the Caribbean-style rum drinks that he was drinking, um, especially because rum was the only thing that was available to him because post-prohibition, whiskey wasn't available, gin wasn't available, um, and this inspired other people around uh, the United States to do the same with people like Trader Vic uh, and drinks that were that were inspired. So uh, on the beach... Uh, Don the Beach Cobo invented like the zombie, Trader Vic with the Mai Tai. That's and we start to seconds. see that really kind of permeate through American culture, including um, the, you know, Chinese food and Taiwanese food and Cantonese food kind of really coming into the forefront of American culture. Uh, and then that has really been coming to the forefront, I guess, since the 90s. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it's there's so much more here. Why am I so I'm running out of time? Jesus, I'm so stressed out. <laughs> Look, you, you did a good job of at least getting the origin story. Uh, I'm so stressed out. Um, what you, was that? You got a the minute first bit. twenty-seven. That, that, was a, that was a minute and a half. Yeah, All it's right. a lot. Look, it's a lot to get. It's it's a lot to get through. And and I think that one of the reasons that this is such a fun topic is that uh, a lot of people don't necessarily understand in the modern context how broad and how influential this was as a cultural movement in 20th century United States beyond cocktails. And the drinks that we're going to we're going to be talking about are just kind of I guess the the genesis point for that. Exactly. Know? And it's, and and the drinks are pretty universal but the the culture that sort of grew out of those drinks mm. um certainly was universal in the United States from the early 1930s right through until the 1970s. Um, and if, if if you'll allow me, I can I can sort of expand on that origin story a little bit. Well, um, yeah, well, we absolutely will. But how about we make our first cocktail? You want to just jump right in? We'll jump right in. Great. I reckon we'll start, well, do you want to do the Mai Tai or do you want to do the zombie first? No, nah, we start with the zombie. Start with the zombie? Absolutely. All right, here we go. Go for it. Now, because I don't want to have a blender up here next to the microphones and all of that kind of stuff, we are shaking it, which is not common, but, you know, it is what it is. You can do the old shake and dump. Shake and dump. Love it. To be honest, I, I, I usually don't use blenders to make zombies. I do shake and dump and then top with crushed ice. I mean, yeah, that's that's fair enough. And, you know, a, a zombie is normally served in a tall glass and you need a lot of ice for that. Lot it's of a ice. boozy, lot of, lot of it's dilution. A damn boozy drink. Well, that's it. Like the way that we serve it in Australia is usually like two and a half to three standard drinks, whereas in the US it would be at least five or six yeah. standard drinks. So, the, yeah, the, all, all those rules about how you're only allowed to have one and all that kind of stuff. Well, uh, what I find funny about the separation between Australian and American bartending, if you look at uh, the, the specs for these classic cocktails, right, mm. It'll say for an American publication, it'll say one and a half ounces, but that's one and a half eyeballed ounces. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is probably closer to about 90 mils. <laughs> well, and even with the with like the proper original recipe for a zombie, it was one and a half ounces of like four different kinds of rums. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're talking about a fair, a fair whack of booze. But you know, it is it is a really uh interesting difference between American and Australian drinking culture in the in the United States, as long as you can stand up. And as, order long a drink. As, and as long as you can talk well enough to order a drink, you generally won't be cut off. Yeah, you won't be cut off. They, you might not get served sometimes because they don't like the cut of your jib. But exactly. <laughs> um, Let's actually start off with what was your first experience with Tropicana slash tiki culture? Wait, do we, do we get to taste the zombie? Yeah, taste it. Go. Thank you. 
Yes. <laughs> I said, I haven't had one in ages. They're so good. It is. Uh, we actually used to have them on the list when I was a, at, at Black Pearl. So we would like make huge batches of it ahead of time because it's a very complicated drink to make. Well, uh, it was still there when I was at Black Pearl recently. Was it? Um, and well, he still had it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, on, <laughs> not actually on the cocktail list. Yeah. And so you could still order a zombie at Black Pearl. And yeah. We had the, at, at the time we had, between me and Chris Heisted, we had designed a cocktail list that was in the form of little um, like trading cards. Like mm-hmm. each cocktail was its own little trading card. And we had um, like different random sort of pop culture references on all of them. And the one, the one for the zombie was like Michael Jackson from the Thriller video, like with all no. the zombie makeup on. I know this menu because it was when I first started bartending. Mm. Um, and I was working at the Kilburn with Joey Ty. Yeah. And we went there and I had two zombies and I don't remember getting home. I bet you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but the zombie is one of my favorite favorite cocktails of all time. Not- Absolutely. And, and it is really indicative of the kind of drinks that Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant, whose, whose name you got through, with with a plum, um, <laughs> using up half of your sixty second history time. Um, more more commonly known as Don the Beachcomber, yeah. and he did actually uh, legally change his name to Don Beach. But he it's did. very it's very indicative of the kind of drinks that he was making um, at his eponymous bar and restaurant mm-hmm. in Hollywood in LA, as you mentioned, um, which he opened in 1933, basically immediately after Prohibition was yeah. repealed. So, yeah, it's a really good example of the kind of drinks that he came up with, which were a pretty new idea at the time because, you know, they're, they're very much based on the kind of uh, pretty basic Caribbean rum punches that he would have had a lot of experience with as a teenager because he actually spent a fair amount of time as a teenager on his grandfather's yacht. His grandfather was a bootlegger yeah. during Prohibition who was running around the Caribbean um, and stocking up on uh, illicit rum to to smuggle back into the US. And this is something that so yeah, people around the world will know the name, the word speakeasy for for bars mm-hmm. that uh, a speakeasy style. Speakeasy style nowadays is so different to what speakeasy bars were. They were dirty. They were dingy. They Most were of them. flooded. You know, but that was yeah. the only place you could drink alcohol because it was illicit. And interestingly, and it one, would have been rum. And interestingly, those speakeasies were some of the first places that men and women started drinking together in the U.S. because there weren't really any rules anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, may as well have uh, co-ed boozing. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, so, but they were drinking rum because whiskey and gin was not available to them. So that's it. And in the immediately post-prohibition era, the same thing was true. As you mentioned, it was hard to get hold of um, gin, whiskey, anything imported because all of those uh, supply chains had been broken for 13 years during Prohibition. So when Don Beach opened his bar in 1933, rum was the thing that he was um, able to get hold of. Um, And and he really is the sort of origin story of uh, mid-century American Tropicana and all of these drinks that we now know and love that, that we sort of in the modern era refer to as tiki drinks. Um, And his, his story is really interesting. If we can sort of go, go back a little bit, in, in his life, he was um, from a wealthy family, but a family that had only had wealth for a couple of generations. His father had made all of his money on the Texas oil fields in the yeah. early 20th century. Um, and so as a self-made man, he wanted to raise his son uh, Ernest that way. So he actually gave him two options. 
when when he graduated from high school after he had obviously spent some of that time running around the Caribbean with his with his bootleg and granddad mm-hmm. um, drinking rum punches, he his dad gave him two options. He basically said to him, "Okay, look, you can either go to college, you can go to university, wherever you like." And I will pay for your education and I'll pay your expenses and all that kind of stuff. That'd be oh, lovely, wouldn't it? That'd be great. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> especially in America where yeah. university education is quite expensive. That's what I mean. <laughs> Thank you very much to my college loans. Um, uh, but when, but the day that you graduate, you're done. You're cut off. Yeah. Uh, that's option one. Option two is I will buy you a round-the-world ticket and for 12 months I will pay all of your travel expenses um, and when you get home after a year, you're cut off, you're done, and you have to make your own way in the world. And Ernest, being uh, the adventurous soul that he was, chose option number two. He went for the red pill. Um, I would have done the same, actually. Uh, yeah, look, at the age of 18, 19, I would have been tempted. Um, I'd certainly take that option now. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, he actually ended up spending... I think it was about three years traveling around the world before he ended up sort of coming back home to the US. Um, and this was sort of during, you know, during Prohibition. And whenever he did come back to the US, it was just to work for long enough at whatever odd jobs he could find to earn enough money to go traveling again. Yeah. Um, because he just fell absolutely in love with the outside world and travel and adventure. Um, in particular, the South Pacific, um, which he just considered to be sort of paradise on earth. Um, I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. And uh, eventually he ends up back in the US in 1933, right at the end of Prohibition and immediately opens a bar to take advantage of the fact that Prohibition has now ended. Um, And he fills the bar with all of these uh, Polynesian artifacts that he has collected over his time um, traveling around that part of the world and is sort of, yeah, inspired to create this kind of tropical fantasy of uh, the Polynesian world. And it's this eclectic mix of just, you know, eclectic is probably a polite word of saying absolutely shit fight of chaos of different cultures smashing together, you know? Absolutely. I mean, he, he definitely magpied it, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Um, and to me, it's like, it's such a fundamentally American story. It's really important to understand that this is not Polynesian culture. This is American culture. And it was a Polynesian aesthetic, you know, in terms of the art and architecture and things like that. Again, you know, a sort of fantasy version of a Polynesian aesthetic. Um, but then... They don't like there's no kind of like traditional Polynesian cocktails. So the cocktails that he was making, like the zombie, were modifications of the Caribbean rum punches. Exactly. Made with Caribbean rum, which was the only booze that he could get hold of. And then because it was immediately post-prohibition, they had quite strict rules about um, still in terms of liquor licensing and all that kind of stuff. So he had to have food available. He couldn't be just a straight bar. So he was like, okay, I've got this Polynesian design aesthetic. I'm serving these Caribbean rum punches. What kind of food am I going to have? And, you know, he didn't really want to do like hungies and stuff like that. Like, you know, Polynesian food culture was not no. something that America was ready for at the time. Los Angeles in Still technically not really anyway. <laughs> exactly. Um, so he was like, uh, what's kind of exotic and cool and interesting and who's around that I can hire to make this food for me? Um, so he ends up hiring a bunch of Cantonese chefs. And that's why in the Tropicana restaurants of America um, during the 20th century, you get 
you know, crab rangoon and poo poo platters and, um, you know, chicken lo mein and, and all of these kind of Canto or American versions of Canto dishes. Well, this is what you and I have talked about this before, where the, I guess, this Americanized Chinese food, hmm. it really starts to become popularized. Around, around, this, this time around this time and surrounding yeah. this this culture as well. Absolutely. There are two different things that happen at one time that kind of popularize That's it. Chinese, this this Americanized Chinese food, like honey chicken, orange chicken, all that kind of stuff, pineapple and all that stuff. And stuff. Yeah. You know, sweetened Chinese crab, dishes. Crab Rangoon. It's a they, great example yeah, of that. And they they certainly didn't have cream cheese in China. So no. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um but this is this is what he thought his like sort of 1930s like white American brain was like oh, yeah that's tropical enough I guess like if we yeah. if we make some if we throw some pineapple a, yeah, at chuck it. a can of pineapple in there, she'll, <laughs> she'll be right um, so and then of course he hired a bunch of Filipino bartenders to actually make the drinks for him to construct the drinks um, so you've got uh, a, a white European American guy making Caribbean rum punches with Caribbean rum <laughs> in a Polynesian themed restaurant with Chinese food made by a bunch of Filipino dudes. Yeah. And like, what could be more American than that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like just, just this, this sort mismatch of, of you uh, know. and the borrowing of cultures and all this kind of stuff. So this, what this does is it creates an American fantasy of tropical yeah, yeah, you know whether it's African tropical or Polynesian tropical or Caribbean you can imagine tropical yourself or in, Southeast Asian tropical doesn't matter. You can right? imagine yourself on any island anywhere in the world, exactly, because you are surrounded by every single islander culture. And there's and so there's something very you know Pirates of the Caribbean at Disney World yeah, about yeah. the whole thing, and that really just does go to show that you know this was a a cultural idea that was really important to Americans at this particular point in, in history, because coming back from world war two and coming out of the depression, they were looking for escapism yeah, yeah. and this American creation of this sort of sanitized fantasy, whether it's, you know, a tiki bar in LA or Las Vegas or um, San Francisco or New York or wherever it might've been. I mean, I'm, I'm even, I'm thinking more about the like, the Disneyland type stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the San Francisco's and New York's, which are like actual cities full of actual people, but these kind of like, it's like the American version of the, of the Potemkin village, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're like, like Florida. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's, that's kind of the, this is part of the, the kind of cultural movement that um, Don the Beachcomber really participates in. Uh, and, and of course, like the zombie is such a great example because what he does with these Caribbean punches which were pretty simple. You know, you've basically got uh, spices, maybe some fruit juice, some kind of sugar, some rum and some citrus juice yeah, yeah. to balance it out. He takes those and he starts making them deliberately more complex by using multiple different kinds of rum. So what kinds of rum have we got in this zombie? So this one, well, this one I use just a beach bump berry spec, yep. which is a split between a Jamaican dark and a British 151. Mm -hmm. Right, so we've got um, Puss's One Five One. That's so awesome. Which is an old school British Navy rum. I didn't right? even realize you could get that in Australia. That makes me really happy. Yeah, right. And it's one of my favorite like One Five Ones that gets around. It's yeah. really there's not many One Five Ones that get around Australia anymore. No, you used to be able to get Smith and Cross and stuff like that, but it's it's really hard to come by these. Yeah, days. and then Bacardi was the big one that was around for a while, but then that's gone as well. I mean, you can get it sometimes, but it wasn't. Favorite. No comment. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, a 151 is 75.5%, you know. Yeah. It's a 
It's a left, right, good night. Yeah, it's a kick up pants for sure. <laughs> um, and then we've got uh, Maya's original duck, a classic Jamaican, rich, molasses driven, big, beautiful rum. That's what. And you then want. so that's our mix of rum. But sometimes they'll have you know three, like you said, three to four different kinds of rum. Maybe a Martinique in there. Maybe a Puerto Rican yeah, gold. Often, or, often a Demerara rum is yeah. called for, and that type of thing. So you've got the complexity of multiple different kinds of rums. Then he's got. Uh, multiple different kinds of sweetening agents. Yeah. Right? So we've got falernum in there and we've also got the secret ingredient. Don's mix. Don's mix. And you mentioned um, beach bum berry. A lot of the information that we're talking about uh, today actually comes from the research that uh, Jeff, quote unquote, beach bum berry, um, did during the 90s and 2000s. for a long, long time, nobody knew what the secret ingredient for the zombie was. It's got grenadine in it. It's got absinthe in it. It's got lime juice in it. And yeah. people knew all of these things, but nobody knew exactly how he used to make it. Um, even the bartenders the, didn't Even know. the bartenders didn't. And this is like, obviously, it's pretty messed up, messed up in hindsight because what he did was he had white bartenders serving people sort yeah. of front of house and they would take the orders, write down the name of the drink and then pass it back to all the Filipino guys who were in the back, basically in a kitchen for producing cocktails. Because they had two kitchens in these restaurants, right? There was one for bars, one for cocktails and one for food. Yeah. So they would pass it through the window. And then the recipes that the guys in the back had just said, you know, uh, one and a half ounces of bottle A, two and a half ounces of bottle B. They didn't even necessarily know what was in them. So it was also everything identified. Everything was numbered or lettered. It was like mix one, and, you know, blend, blend A and... <laughs> That's it. So what is the secret ingredient in Don's mix? Cinnamon, sugar and grapefruit juice. Cinnamon syrup and grapefruit juice. Yeah. That's super simple. And Jeff Berry managed to figure this out. Um, I'm pretty sure it was because he tracked down one of the actual bartenders who was like in his 80s or something like that, one of the Filipino guys who had, had been doing the prep. And he was like, oh, yeah, I know I know what's in Don's mix. So we should actually mention that, so Beach Bum Berry, you've already mentioned that he is one of the most prolific historians of this period of time, of this culture. Yep. But he's written multiple books. But there's one book in particular that he breaks all this down for you, which is Sipping Safari, one of the best. It's a great book. Cocktail history and cocktail books in general, I've ever read. I've read Absolutely. it, I think, three or four times, right? Yeah, in my mind, he's really up there with Wondrich in terms of, um, you know, promoting these original recipes and, mm-hmm. and digging into the the history of these folks and who created these cultural movements. Well, yeah, and he hunted down the, the Filipino bartenders that worked for him and he found one that actually was willing to give up the information, you yeah. know? Pretty good. So now we actually have what we're pretty sure is the is the original uh, zombie recipe, and that's that's what that's we're what we've now. made today. Yeah, yeah it's bloody delicious. And, um, a little bit of absinthe, mate. I'm not a big fan of aniseed flavors, but a touch of absinthe, mate. See, I love absinthe, but uh, people have probably heard if they've listened to the previous series that you know one of the first alcoholic beverages I've ever had was absinthe, which was made by my father. That's weird. Yeah, super strange. <laughs> Very strange experience. But the the product they would have put into these cocktails post-prohibition would have probably been perno pastis. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. They rather than been absinthe. able to get absinthe. Yep. Rather than the tazzy absinthe that we use today. <laughs> I mean, why not? Yeah, if we've got it, use it. Um, so, yeah, uh, Zombie, a re- really good example of the of the sort of complexity that Don Beach would use to, to create what he called his rum rhapsodies. Yeah, yeah. And so these were um, 
the first examples that we see of these kind of more complex tropical rum-based punches that would sort of form the the liquid foundation of this kind of Tropicana movement, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to me because in, in a way they're kind of going back full circle to the kind of colonial era punches that would have been made, um, you know, in places like Philadelphia and Boston in the 1700s where they were making these kind of very complex uh, like multiple serve punches in big punch bowls with, um, you know, heaps of different kinds of spirits and different sugars and different citruses and all yeah, that kind of stuff. Different sweeteners. Um, I exactly. mean, we've mentioned that there's lime and grapefruit juice in this. Yes. And there's, you know, grenadine, falernum and cinnamon, cinnamon sugar. Yep. So it's just this really complex and dense cocktail. Yeah. And, uh, but it's a very simple concept. The rum punch is just a very simple concept. That's it. And so in this, in this post-prohibition era in Los Angeles, um, Don's restaurant was really successful and was frequented by celebrities all the time. You know, Clark Gable was in there drinking his zombies and toddling his little mustache home and all that, all, <laughs> all, all, all that kind of stuff. His little mustache and big ears. That's it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then at that point, you know, Don was an adventurer more so than a business person. And it was actually his wife um, who really sort of took hold of the business. Her name was Sunny or her nickname was Sunny. And, and she kind of took hold of the business side of things and really kind of professionalized the operation of the restaurant, moved them to a bigger space, hired the staff, did the books, all that kind Made of stuff. Made it successful. Also Made it successful from a business point of view and ended up opening other branches mm -hmm. of um, Don the Beachcombers in other parts of the city and other parts of the country. And even after they got divorced in 1940, she kind of continued to run the business side of things on his behalf. And so in a lot of ways, Don the Beachcombers was the very first chain restaurant yeah, in yeah. America, which is obviously now chain restaurants are like, a hugely important part I mean, of, think of things like TGI Fridays and and yeah. and Sizzler yeah, and Panda Express and, and all of that stuff. You yeah. know what I mean? Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Not many people in Australia know Cracker Barrel and I didn't until I went to Texas. So that's it. Yeah, it's a very unique. I mean, uh, come, come for the biscuits, stay for the adult contemporary CDs on sale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, also what you're mentioning here with uh, Don the Beach Cover and Sunny and making it a chain restaurant, this inspired other people to do the same. And I mentioned very briefly Trader Vic during um, the 62nd history and his input. So should we make our next cocktail? Absolutely. Trader Vic is the next part of the story. Yeah. And um, this cocktail that you are about to make is I will start shaking this. Go for it. Uh, this is my absolute... Favorite shaken cocktail of all time. Yeah, yeah. And this is, of course, the original recipe of the Mai Tai. Yeah, Trader Vic. Gotta, gotta love what he's done with this drink. Absolutely. Um, and again, this is something that you and I have spoken about quite frequently. Have a taste. Tell me what you think. I will. Thank you. This drink is something that you and I talk about frequently because there oh, are, there so are modern interpre interpretations of this, but... The classic is still one of the best cocktails ever made. Absolutely. And and at its core, it's a very simple cocktail. One of the things that Trader Vic did almost as an update to the, the really quite complicated drinks that Don the Beachcomber was making 
was that uh, Victor Bergeron, which was his real name, he was actually a trained chef and so had a very good understanding of flavor and balance and things like that. So he actually pulled back a little bit on the, you know, ridiculous ingredients list that a lot of Don the Beachcombers drinks had and simplified them. Yeah, yeah. And to me, the Mai Tai is a really perfect example of that because it's essentially a, a modified rum sour, so a modified daiquiri really. Yeah, yeah. But it's got two different kinds of rum, so a little bit more complex and two different sweetening agents. So again, not quite as crazy as as a Don the Beachcomber drink, but also not as simple as just like a straight daiquiri. Exactly. And I mean, for this one here, we've used a, so typically would call for, like you said, two rums, which usually equal parts, lime juice and a French style rum or what they would call a Martinique gold. Yep. And then a, a really dark Jamaican rum. So mm-hmm. again, we've used Myers. Uh, Jamaican dark Um, and I've used just something I had lying around the house a 10 year old Mauritian French style rum which you know is a bit bit special but stuff is delicious it's so good but uh, and then so equal parts of all those so half the amount of lime juice that you've got rum Mm -hmm. and then you've got two sweetening agents like you mentioned which is um, uh, orja and uh, curacao. Yeah, so a little bit of almond, a little bit of orange, which yeah. of course are great flavors to go together. And, you know, again, we're talking about a classically trained chef here. So almond, orange. Can't go wrong. Can't go wrong. These are flavors that work really well. And again, this is a this is a booze forward drink. It's mm-hmm. got twice the amount of rum as it does juice in it. The juice is just in there as a, as a balancing agent, the same way that it would be in a traditional daiquiri. So yeah, um, Trader Vic is kind of like pulling back a little bit and and making these these cocktails not quite so full on, um, but oh, it's just approachable, you know? absolutely, and more more accessible for for the greater public, you know. Um, and and I think that yeah, the the mai tai obviously such an amazing uh, such a such an amazingly well known drink and and with a really sort of strong cultural association. Um, but Trader Vic's story is is really interesting one as well. Um, Please enlighten us. And and goes back to this whole idea of sort of post-war escapism, um, which was so important to the Tropicana movement in, in uh, 20th century America. Yeah. He opened a bar in 1934 in San Francisco called Hinky Dinks, and this was at the height of the Depression. So he would often allow people to, instead of paying for their bar tabs, to trade him with pieces of art and artifacts and ephemera, which he ended up decorating his bar with. So this was really one of the first bars that was just completely covered in randomness. You know what Nick I mean? Knickknacks and clutter and chaos. Just everything all over the joint. Yeah. Um, and he really did his best to kind of look after people in this way. And so that became the sort of aesthetic. And and one of my favorite ever stories just from hospitality in general is, um, you know, Trader Vic talking about why he wanted to sort of move from having just kind of a, a more sort of standard neighborhood bar to move into this kind of Tropicana style bar is because he had a couple who were pretty down on their luck, didn't have much money, but they would come in every Friday night wearing their shabby best um, and spend whatever loose change they had in their pockets on a couple of drinks because it was their one piece of joy for the week. You know, it was their one moment of escapism and, um, you know, just letting the, the cares of the outside world sort of wash away for a few minutes. And, you know, uh, Vic Bergeron was really touched by this and thought to himself, okay, so the most important thing that I can do for my customers is to give them a bit of escapism. Well, this is uh, something that 
I think you and I are both pretty passionate about in general, which is that that entire concept that you're talking about, that that providing this experience for someone who, you know, might be having a really tough day or whatever. That's hospitality. Absolutely. That's why it's named what it is, is we look after people. That's it. That's why hospitals are called hospitals. Not quite the same, (laughs) but, you know. Uh, it's in fact quite inverse, providing them with alcohol and uh, uh, code daiquiri. Yeah, yeah. But um. it, 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 look, that's why it, it, hospitality is looking after people, yes. and that's what it is, and caring for people, and the people who get into it, who succeed in it, care for people and look after people. That's what we do. That's it. And you know, you and I have obviously talked about, and we, you know, we talk a lot about um, the fact that people have a tendency to get sometimes overly focused on the liquid in the glass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in the bartending world when really the most important thing is looking after people. And I, uh, you know, I'm such a proud cocktail bartender and such a proud cocktail nerd, but I understand that cocktails are inherently silly. Yeah. Right? They're inherently frivolous. And that's why, <laughs> and that's why yeah. I like, that's why I like tropical drinks so much in particular, because everyone knows they're silly. You know, yeah. they've got paper umbrellas in them and they've got silly names and they've got too many different ingredients. Blue drinks, and, right? And they're blue for no yeah. reason. <laughs> and I love that, right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, to me, um, the Do whole you- idea of a cocktail is very much that hinky dinks idea of like, when you sit down at the bar and somebody hands you a cocktail, it's like this switch is flipped in your head that goes, okay, I'm no longer at work. I'm no longer worrying about the outside world. I'm not looking my, after children or what, cleaning the house. Exactly. Or, whatever, or, my, whatever my stresses yeah. and anxieties are, I'm now in pure leisure mode. Yeah. Right? And in Depression-era America and in post-World War II-era America, that was hugely important for people because not everyone could afford to actually go on a holiday, but you could go and spend 50 cents or a buck in a bar have and, a mini holiday for a, mili- a couple of hours. Have a and mini then, holiday. You know. Um, um, so in, in many ways, while Don the Beachcombers did have multiple branches, it was really Trader Vic um, and his restaurants that kind of blew up as a franchise and ended up opening all across the United States um, and were, you know, at, at the time listed amongst like the best restaurants in, in America and stuff like that. They were really, really influential. They were also really high concept, right? Where Absolutely. Even the building itself was designed around the this whole aesthetic, you know? For sure. You'd drive past on the highway and see these giant torches and these like huge carven faces and stuff like that. Yeah. And it would just, yeah. I saw one that was uh, in Hawaii that was a teepee, which is not something you see in Hawaii anyway. <laughs> it was just... Really obtuse and obscure, right? Again, such just like randomness from from like mid century American culture, yeah. right? Like, just yeah, chaos. let's 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 make a tiki bar look like the the traditional nomadic housing of the Plains Indians. Why yeah, not? exactly. <laughs> On this little Pacific hey. island, yeah, you want some noodles with that? <laughs> yeah. uh, with the tin of pineapple in. It. That's it. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, he opens these restaurants all over the place. But then, the the I guess the the other really important thing to remember, and the part that people don't really realize, is that this cultural movement of kind of tropicana and escapism went so far beyond cocktails, yeah, right, and even so far beyond hospitality and restaurants and stuff like that. There were tropical themed nightclubs, hotels, apartment buildings. You know what I mean? There were um, tropical themed mini golf courses. There were tropical themed everything. There were probably like tropical themed drive-in movie theaters. You know, this entire... Oh, there were. This entire vibe. The Flintstones is basically prehistoric... 
uh, Tropicana. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, and it kind of coincides with not only this idea of, of kind of post-war escapism, which everyone was really into, it also coincides with Hawaii becoming the 50th state of mm-hmm. the United States and commercial air travel for the first time in history becoming efficient enough that it was available to middle-class Americans. So instead of just packing the station wagon and, uh, and driving to Yellowstone or the Keys for family holiday, now you could um, take your kids to the airport and take them to Hawaii or to Puerto Rico or somewhere else in the Caribbean mm-hmm. for a, an actual tropical holiday. Um, and so American hotel chains like the Hilton start popping up in actual tropical places where Americans are visiting. And, you know, so you've got tropical themed TV shows, um, Gilligan's Island. Yeah. Yeah. Right um, through to the seventies. You've got the love boat. You know what I mean? And then uh, that, that proceeded all the way through to the nineties with things like Hawaii Five O or, you know. Yeah. And, and Magnum PI where yeah, he's yeah. wearing the Hawaiian shirts all the time and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, you've got movies like Elvis in Blue Hawaii, right? <laughs> 1961. It was one of the most popular movies of 1961. <laughs> and, and of course, like if you go to an American like used record store, you'll have all of these like Tropicana themed records, like all this, all this quote unquote Hawaiian music. Some of it was actual Hawaiian music, like Don Ho, yeah. a Hawaiian musician being one of the most famous American musicians of, of the second half of the, the 20th century. Um, you know, so much so that the the soundtrack to Blue Hawaiian by Elvis was stayed at the uh, at number one in the Billboard charts for twenty straight weeks in nineteen sixty one, and was the second most popular soundtrack album of the entire nineteen sixties, uh, topped only by West Side Story. Well, right? this this is a a great point, right? Because one of my, as you well know, one of my favorite styles of music is surf rock, mm-hmm. Beach Boys, The Shadows, especially The Shadows, uh, all of it. But that is all inspired by this Tropicana movement with uh, this uh, Polynesian music inspiring rock and roll to, to just do something fun for people who are surfing in California. Absolutely. Um, and it's just this, this huge movement that has infected our entire life. Absolutely. A lot of little things that I find funny about this is it's little things that no one would notice, like, Simple thing, a very humble thing that we in Australia know very well, the pine lime splice ice cream. Delicious. It's a, it's a fucking pina colada in an ice cream. <laughs> right? That's Absolutely. what it is. Absolutely. And you think about like the tropical punch juice boxes that you had in your school lunch or like the tropical flavored, you know, cottage cordial and stuff exactly. like that. These, these are all basically like Don the Beachcomber recipes without the rum in them. You know? Yeah. Right. It's just, you know. Wax and rum and that you've got a you've got a 1930s cocktail. That's it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, absolutely. Mm, that's a good idea. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Like I'm pretty sure plenty of Australians have done that in garbage bags in yeah. backyard parties yeah. at, at times. Um, I'm I'm really glad that you uh, I'm glad that you mentioned the pina colada because that's one that we're not going to make today, but is a is a is a great 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 sort of example of of this culture and it kind of and how it shifted and how it shifted and how it kind of like permeated global drinks culture. So the pina colada was actually invented by a um, Puerto Rican bartender in Puerto Rico at the Hotel Hilton Caribe, which was the first really big successful international Hilton. and it was the welcome drink that people were given, almost exclusively Americans, right? Traveling, yeah. traveling to Puerto Rico for a holiday. And it was the uh, drink that they were given on arrival there. So it's almost like 
this whole thing is coming full circle, right? Because you've got um, Don the Beachcomber making drinks inspired by Caribbean punches that have been yeah. around probably for 500 years, you know, turning that into this kind of American uh, mid-century Tropicana movement and then that finding its way back to the Caribbean via the Hotel Hilton. And by, being, by an American hotel chain. Right, but then with a Latin American bartender <laughs> being like, all right, cool, let's stick some rum in the traditional, like, basically refresco that we have, which is just, um, you know... Coconut cream and coconut pineapple, cream and strained juice pineapple juice. And, yeah, yeah. And that, so, you know what I mean? It's like this whole kind of, this, this thing that sort of circles back around on but itself. I mean, it even permeates further, and this leads us into the next drink mm -hmm. that we're going to make, which is the Jungle Birds, Ooh, which so I know good. is one of your favourites. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, all three of these, you and I picked these specifically because they're our three favourites. So let's yep. let's make this Jungle Birds. You're going to shake that one up? Yeah. All right, shake and dump. Do it. Taste that one. So Jungle oh, Bird is just so good. how tea, Tropicana culture, I almost call it tiki culture. Tropicana culture has gone even further than that and even further into Southeast Asia because, I mean, some of that original um, South Pacific inspiration came from around that area anyway. But it Absolutely. Just, um, and, you know, uh, Don the Beachcomber was uh, in in World War II in the, in the Air Force and, and a lot of people obviously, like the, the majority of Americans that participated in World War II that were active service people in World War II were of course fighting in the Eastern Theater mm -hmm. in the Pacific, right? So they spent a lot of time in places like Guam and, um, you know, Samoa and the Japanese islands and Papua New Guinea and all this kind of stuff yeah. as part of that whole thing. So it's part of where the nostalgia for all of that stuff comes from. But with this drink, we're sort of moving into... Um, not only a little bit later in history, because this drink comes about in uh, the early 1970s, but also into a different uh, sort of um, geographical area, which is Southeast Asia. Yeah. And of course, Southeast Asia has had uh, a massive influence on the kind of tropical drinks culture that we know and love today with drinks like the Singapore Sling and the which Peggy Club and all that kind of stuff. Something we're not going to touch on today, but yeah, it it's is. A, it's a whole other episode. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and of course, we're really lucky in Australia to be so close to that part of the world to travel easily to places like Bangkok and Kuala Lumpur and to have so many amazing bartenders working in Australia. Um, who have uh, sort of family origins in, in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, um, that kind of thing, and, and bringing those flavours to bear on Australian drinks is amazing. Yeah, yeah. But again, that's a whole other episode. I know, we could spend um, another three, four hours talking about that. Uh, but. But, but this drink in particular I absolutely love because it's got a really, really like big um, sort of dense blackstrap rum in it. It's got pineapple juice, it's got lime juice, so we're very much in that sort of Tropicana um, realm but then it's got a big whack of Campari in it, which really kind of dries it out on the finish and makes it bitter. So it smells really sweet and rich. And but then it's got this amazing dry finish. And but it's it's the it's the tropical drink for people who don't like sweet things. Yeah, and it was one of the first uh, tropical drinks that got me into tropical drinks. Yeah. Um, following that was the zombie. Yep. Um, and it was when I was first trying to understand what tropical drinks meant because previously, also we mentioned the Mai Tai. I'd only ever had. Mai Tais that were pineapple Mai Tais, not proper right. Mai Tais, you know? Sort of, yeah, the 70s, is, 80s version. Yeah, there's no real right. Well, there's, it's not better or worse. It's just different. It's, it's different. just 
you know, and I, at that point in time, I wasn't really interested in sweet things. I mean, I still am not, but the original Mai Tai really converted me, but it was the jungle bird and the zombie that really got me excited about Tropicana drinks. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, this, this one in particular, the jungle bird, uh, was given as the welcome drink to visitors to the Kuala Lumpur Hilton. So another, another Hilton cocktail, Hilton. but obviously in Southeast Asia rather than in the Caribbean. Um, and it was crafted by a bartender by the name of Je- Jeffrey Ong at the hotel's Avery bar. So, um, a really awesome drink and a really uh, a really great example of one of these things that sort of comes back into fashion every few years when a new generation of bartenders discovers it and goes, mm-hmm. oh, my God, this is such an amazing drink. It's all tropical and delicious and great for summertime, but it's not overly sticky sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people still, like, obviously, if you make a lot of these tropical drinks correctly with enough fresh lime juice, enough fresh citrus, they don't have to be sticky sweet, even Mai Tais and zombies and stuff. But if you even want to go one step drier than that, uh, Jungle Bird is, yeah. is kind of perfect. You always add a dash of absinthe in it. It cleans it right up. It's yeah. just, you know, it's, it is a beautiful drink, but Absolutely. It, it's not for the, well, I mean, none of these are really for the faint-hearted because they're boozy drinks. They are, but I mean, look, if you like a daiquiri, you should you should like a, a Mai Tai, you know yeah. what I mean? It's just a slightly more complex version of it. Exactly. Um, so I suppose that kind of like brings us all the way back around to uh, the, the modern era. And um, one of the things that we sort of mentioned at the top was the fact that most people think of these drinks and refer to these drinks these days as tiki drinks. Yeah, we started We started with this. We, we should break that down. We should. Um, because I guess it's important for people to understand that that is not a term that was really used to describe these drinks until the 1990s. Yeah. Until the sort of revival of this style comes back around. Because I don't know if you remember in the 90s, people were starting to like learn how to swing dance again and people started wearing Hawaiian shirts again and there was this kind of like almost 1950s revival thing happening. And and so people like Jeff Berry started getting interested in the history of this and and they started being referred to as, as tiki drinks. But Don the Beachcomber and Trader Vic and all through the sort of 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, that that would not have been a term that was used to describe these, these cocktails or the culture surrounding them. It, they were just known as tropical drinks or rum punches, um, like you or, said, or uh, referred to by their name, rum revelations or rum rhapsodies, rum rhapsodies, sorry, exactly. yes. uh, and, um, and, and the movement in general was just sort of known as like Tropicana. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and Tropicana is a great name for it. Um, but also, I mean, you mentioned that things come back in fashion, you know, mm. it's almost like a 50 year cycle, right? Absolutely. So about 20 years after that thing has happened, it's going to become fashion with the, the children again, but not the children of the people who went through it. Yeah, exactly. So it's like the grandchildren will always bring it back. That's it. For us right now, it's the, the low rise jeans of the 90s. That's what's coming back in late oh, 90s, early 2000s. Absolutely. That's what's happening, right? Love it. Um uh, Backstreet's back. Yeah. back. <laughs> um, All right. <laughs> uh, sorry, it was like a reflex reaction. I couldn't help it. Um, yeah. So, uh, but so let's break down where that where that term tiki actually yes, comes from please. because it does actually have some pretty important cultural and spiritual meaning for the actual people of the South Pacific, right? Mm -hmm. So the word tiki comes from Maori mythology. So uh, in indigenous New Zealand mythology, um, 
And in their mythology, Tiki is the first man. So it's kind of like their version of Adam from Adam and Eve. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Tiki as a character is depicted frequently in carvings. Um, Those big wooden carvings. Big wooden carvings or like smaller like uh, portable idols and things mm-hmm. like that and in, in a lot of the artwork and stuff that you sort of see. And so that tongue would have been... that kind of stuff. Exactly, yeah, yeah. The big eyes, exaggerated, tongue out, all that kind of thing. And so that would have been... Um, depicted in a lot of the artwork that people like Don the Beachcomber would have taken back with them to decorate their bars and that ended up being the sort of design aesthetic, you know, the big carved columns out the front of the... um, But also the mugs that they serve the cocktails in. And also the mugs that they serve the cocktails in started having these faces carved in them. That was actually a thing that Don the Beachcomber never did, but he sort of served his, his... drinks out of kind of standard glassware, just large versions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was Trader Vic who started making the the mugs look like these kind of totem pole, mm-hmm. tiki totem types of things. So I'm pretty sure that's where the name comes from because it's a tiki mug, right? Like a mug that has a tiki face it, on I, it. Yeah, it's got the idol of tiki on it. On it. And then the drink that comes in the mug is a tiki drink, right? Yeah. So that's how we sort of get to that term. Um but it's it's not a term that was used uh, originally. So it's so on on one hand, it's not a particularly historically accurate term to describe this movement or these drinks. And on the other hand, it it is probably a little bit problematic to be using uh, such an important um, spiritual figure from somebody else's culture to that describe a silly cocktail. Also, uh, uh, I mean, yes, Polynesian culture and South Pacific culture are very influential. Uh, especially New Zealand culture is not really related, just was there, you know, there was taken back and was in. Yeah. Cause again, this is not an accurate representation of Polynesian culture in any way, shape or form. It, it's fundamentally American. It is. Right? It's an Americanization on many cultures from around the world. Exactly. And it's also important to recognize that not only is it an Americanization, it's also a fantasy. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so I think that if we can recognize it as that and recognize it as being, something that fantastical was just sort of fantastical and, and silly. And that's why to me, like calling them tropical drinks and calling it Tropicana is um, not only more accurate, but on a, on a sort of historical level, it's also kind of more accurate in terms of what it actually is. Yeah. Because yeah, to me using, using the term Tiki and I do it all the time. I still, I still use the term Tiki cause that's kind of what I was, uh, I, I was taught that these drinks were called Tiki. Well, that's, drinks. That was the same for me. And I, I it, um, it's after a conversation with you, uh, couple of months ago that we kind of first of all designed this episode Mm. but also uh, around trying to change my own language surrounding these drinks because I do talk about them all the time in general in my just day-to-day life yeah so trying to change my own perception and my own language takes time the the other thing that I like about the the term sort of tropical drinks or tropical punches tropicana whatever is that it kind of incorporates not only the the stuff that kind of came up in sort of mid-century America, but also all those beautiful Southeast Asian drinks and some of the stuff that's being made in the Caribbean now. And also the you know tropical, I mean? it includes that escapism and the silliness surrounding it, you know, definitely, you know, the, the frivolous, like you said, the frivolous nature around what we are actually drinking. Yeah. Which um, is not, not to me something that's necessarily appropriate to relate to somebody's creation myth. No, exactly. Um, are there any cocktails that, that we didn't mention today or didn't make today that we should, we should talk about or, Oh, look, or people I mean, should search out. I mean, if if you can find a bar that knows how to make the Don the Beachcomber recipes properly, he had hundreds. You know, oh. and and some of them are amazing. Like 
drinks like three dots and a dash and the Jaguar and the fog cutter and stuff like that. Like they're fog such cutter, amazing absolutely. drinks. They're like so complicated to make that you can't just like walk into your local and be like, Hey mate, I'll have a fog cutter. Like, because you really have to know what the ingredients are and you, you have, have to, to have them of, ready for you. You have to do a lot of prep ahead of time, which is why people kind of tend to know things like the pina colada and the Mai Tai because they're um, relatively easy to make. They've got relatively few ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, you know, uh, a, a properly made Singapore sling is yeah, yeah. another amazing one from that sort of Southeast Asian. And again, I think, I think we, well, we talked a lot about Beach Bum Berry or Jeff Berry. His book, Sipping Safari, is probably one of the best books you can get if you enjoy these drinks at all. And just yep. use the specs in there because they're as accurate as you're ever going to find. Absolutely. Um, but there's, a, there's a, a, a cocktail in that book that I found called The Suffering Bastard. Yeah. Which I is one of one my favorite cocktails yeah. ever. And it's, you know, it's a bit of a nuisance, but it is, um, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a nuisance, but it is a drink that, you know, you pour, pour Coke into it and shake it with the carbonated soft drink within it, which is chaotic. But it creates such a cool textural experience. Absolutely. Um, shake and fizzy drinks. Yeah, shake and fizzy drinks. Um, and you mentioned the fog cutter before, right? The fog cutter being a drink with a bit of sherry in it, mm-hmm. you know, floated on top. Absolutely. It's, you know, you walk into a bar and you order that from someone. Yeah. They're more than likely either going to make it for you or stab you. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where with a lot of these drinks, you have to be in a place that's sort of set up to make them properly, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and so there are some great bars around the world that do this. I think probably first and foremost would be Smuggler's Cove in San Francisco Yeah, is, is to my mind the sort of primary bar in the world that's that's really kind of continuing this culture and making these drinks really, really well. They also have an amazing book. The Smuggler's Cove cocktail book is, is a really a good, good one. If you want just like more about the the recipes and how to construct the drinks and less of the history that you get with with Jeff Berry. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a fantastic book. And um, yeah, Trailer Happiness in London is another yeah. another really good one. It's doing a really good good job of of making those drinks and sort of carrying it forward. So yeah, there are definitely still uh, still some places that are doing it well. And of course, if you ever get the chance to visit LA, there are a couple of like the original original bars yeah, that are uh, still around. Um, Tiki Tea and uh, Tonga Hut, uh, yeah, two yeah. of my favorites in LA, which are which are just awesome places. And you got uh, Beach Bum Berry, Jeff Berry's bar in yeah, New Orleans. His, his bar in New Orleans is great as well. Relatively new, but it's obviously been created out of all the research that he's done, and is a really really fun place. The drinks to visit. there were phenomenal. Yeah, they're so good. Yeah. So good. And um, yeah, well, I mean, you've answered my last question, <laughs> which was what bars around the world do you think we should uh, look at? That's uh, it. But I, I mean, and I suppose like the, the, only other, the only other point that I wanted to make as well as the sort of like the kind of long running and really deep cultural impact of all of this stuff, the, to me, the, the primary example of that is like if you say Singapore sling to somebody, if you say Mai Tai to somebody, if you say Pina Colada to somebody, the instant images. The transportation that your brain makes. Right. Like know. the cultural associations we have with those words. Like you could say Mai Tai or Pina Colada to somebody who's never had one and they know exactly what you mean. They know exactly what you're they talking about. They see the about. shirts that we're wearing right now, you know, exactly. the, the floral bright colored prints. And They're immediately transported to a white sand beach with a bent coconut tree hanging over it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, and that's, it's that's evocative. an amazing thing. Where I just 
Yeah, that's, <laughs> it. that's it. You can't help but sort of being in this mood, even just hearing these words. And to me, uh, that's a beautiful thing. It is. It is a beautiful thing, and it's why we, it's why we we love it so so deeply and so intrinsically because it separates us from the the reality, the harsh realities of the world that we live in. That's it. Um, well, are you ready for our final four questions? Ooh, what, what's that all about? So we got four secret questions that I ask everyone that we do an episode with. Secrets, secrets, and I just want a very quick fire answer from you. Okay. What is your shot of choice? Pickleback. Pickleback. Yeah. Two shots technically, but you know. Well. <laughs> um, yeah, Jameson's and Pickle Brian. Yeah, yeah. Can't go wrong. That's uh, what it should have been called. Um, guilty pleasure drink. Uh, there's a couple, but yeah, let's go, let's go with um, Jack and Coke out of a can. Yeah. One of, one of the little like double ones, you know? Yeah, I mean? yeah. The yeah. Little, oh, oh, like the wild, like the nine percent wild turkey ones. Uh, it's Jack and Coke for me. They're good travelers. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, how do you like your martini, shaken or stirred? Stirred, generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if the bartender has a particular version that they want to give me, I'm I'm always open to it. But if, the, if left you know, to my own devices, yeah, it wet, changes wet. the drink texturally and anything. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And there's personal preference that goes into that. But yeah, left left to my devices, it's either a, it's either a Gibson or a um, wet Plymouth with a twist. Yeah, yeah, know exactly what you're talking about. Now the final one, mm. one of which Vula finds abhorrent. Yes. What are your thoughts on red wine and Coca Cola? Together. Oh, look, you do you, but to me, red wine is sweet enough. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, yeah, red wine I always think of as, as being the, yeah, something rich and sweet as is. I definitely don't want to add more sugar to it. And certainly I would hope to be drinking red wine of a quality <laughs> that, that it wouldn't need any Coca-Cola in it. But, you know, who, who am I to, to tell people how to drink well, that's a victory. I'm going to take that one for me. <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah. victory for Vula, but one, I will one make you... Side. Have a red wine and coke by the end of this season. The Cali Mocho. Cali Mocho. <laughs> Horrible thought. Yeah, I mean, uh, who, who am I to tell an entire country of Argentinians that they're wrong? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, would you want to, though? <laughs> well, on that note, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been so much fun drinking cocktails with you, as we kind of tend to do anyway. Yeah, so. thank you for making me some delicious drinks, mate. Uh, again, it's been a while since I had most of those, so I appreciate it. How good's a zombie? So good. <laughs> well, I'll talk to you very soon and as in straight after this. Excellent. <laughs> thank you very much. All Cheers. Right. Thanks for having me, bud. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Spirited Discussions. I hope you had as much fun as I have and have been able to take away something you didn't know. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share with your friends and please join me next time on Spirited Discussions. Spirited Discussions.